Now you remember the message. Commando, Kirby, Code Red, coordinates, got it. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. You know, it's funny. We are 11 episodes into our into our podcast, and I'm kind of surprised it's taken us this long to get around to discussing a staple of both 80s cinema mm. and our childhoods, mm-hmm. the action movie. Yes, we have talked about movies that have contained plenty of action, but the action movie, capital A, capital M... <laughs> The 80s action movie, to be precise, is a very specific thing. And the movie we're talking about today, Commando, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, is a quintessential example of the genre. As an article on Esquire.com puts it, Commando is the most 80s action movie of the 80s. Word. Now, this movie is a classic, make no mistake, but I feel like when we're talking about Arnold in the 80s, um, this movie isn't one that immediately comes to most people's minds, right? We think Terminator, Predator, maybe Conan. This movie did not have the the longevity that those did. In fact, in one form or another, all three of those stories, Conan and, and Predator and Terminator, are all being still told today in one, one form or another, be it comic books or movie sequels and reboots. And while Commando definitely did well at the box office for 1985, it didn't come anywhere near a very similar movie released that very same year by Arnold's only real box office rival, Sylvester Stallone, and that was Rambo, First Blood Part 2. Hell, Rambo uh, 2, we, we, that story's still being told. We just got a, uh, a new Rambo movie a year or two ago, um, and back in 85, it was such a huge deal. We got cartoons, uh, toys. Video games. Yes, video games, for sure. There was actually a, a pretty lousy Commando toy line that was released, um, but nobody remembers or cares. Let's talk about, for, for context here, let's talk about, let's run down Arnold's other action movies of the 80s. In 1982, we had Conan the Barbarian. A couple years later, we had the sequel, Conan the Destroyer. Uh, also that year, in 1984, we got The Terminator. In 1985, we got Red Sonja. A classic. Um, <laughs> Bridget. Yeah. Bridget Nielsen. And while I think there are actually some ties to the Conan universe through like the comics or something, I don't know. This was clearly just a bargain basement ripoff uh, of Conan that Arnold actually called the worst film he had ever made. (laughs) Although I remember my cousin was obsessed with this movie, had a poster and talked about it all the time. And I've recently tried to rewatch it and it was pretty unwatchable. He was a big Arnold guy though, right? Obsessed. Arnold could, could do no wrong. 1985, AKA the greatest year ever. Uh, we do a little recap of it in a, in an episode from a while back. Gave us uh, Commando that we're talking about today. Raw Deal the next year in 86. In 87, we, bo- we got both uh, Predator and The Running Man. And in 88, we got Red Heat, which I, th- I think it was he was in that with uh, Jim Belushi, right? Was that the yeah, movie? That's right. Yes. Plenty of, of great movies on that list. But in terms of sheer fun... I feel like Commando is really pretty tough to beat. Yes. It's it's a cartoon. It's basically a live action cartoon. And it, it makes Arnold the superhuman, super powerful guy that we always imagined he really was as kids. Right from the, the moment we meet him, the first 
uh, time we see him on screen, he's carrying, basically carrying a tree <laughs> over his shoulder, right? This massive log, like we would carry a, a sack of laundry, this impossibly huge log that no human being could carry. That's our first glimpse of Arnold in this movie. Apparently in an AMA and ask me anything on Reddit, Arnold, when he was promoting um, whatever awful new Terminator movie was out at the time, as I said, that that story, the Terminator story is, is still being told to this day. For better or for worse. Um, for, <laughs> yeah, probably worse. Um, apparently he said that uh, someone asked, asked him about Commando, and I guess he had said like when he was reading it and he realized that he's carrying around like this thousand pound tree on his shoulder, he knew it was going to be... Uh, Kind of bonkers. So we meet <laughs> we meet our hero, uh, John Matrix, which from what I understand, that's a, it's a very common name among Austrian men. <laughs> that's our first sort of example of this being uh, a cartoon is his goofy name, his goofy like video game character name. It sounds like it. He should hang out with Rad Spencer from <laughs> Bionic Commando, the game. We meet uh, John Matrix, retired special forces guy. And he lives in a, a remote, beautiful remote area um, with his daughter, played by Alyssa Milano, whose name escapes me. We'll just go with Alyssa Milano. Um, <laughs> and Alyssa Milano as herself. <laughs> we, uh, we knew who she was when we saw this movie. This came out after the first season of Who's the Boss? So, uh, so she was kind of famous at this point. Uh, Fun fact. Yeah. As you may recall, I had a full-size poster of Alyssa milano up in my room as a young lad yes yes you did i remember that poster i had quite a crush on a young Alyssa milano what little 10 year old in 1985 didn't john matrix and his daughter Alyssa milano live in this remote mountain area in this beautiful like cabiny kind of house now you looked up where this house actually actually is right Yes, it was so beautiful. Watching this opening montage, I was like, I want to be there. They're hunting and fishing and getting ice cream and so beautiful. I thought it was maybe Colorado, but it's actually in Southern California, not that far from Hollywood. After the daddy-daughter montage that we saw, like you said, they're swimming and fishing and they are interrupted by the arrival of some army helicopters. And that's where we meet Matrix's old CO, that's commanding officer for all you civilians out there. Uh, Major General Franklin Kirby and Kirby informs Matrix that someone has been killing other members of his former unit, despite the fact that they've all been uh, given new identities and have been in hiding. So you've done a beautiful job of opening up the movie for us. And that's exactly how I remember it, except we know that given our recent rewatch, there is a part that actually happens just before this, and that is a series of cold-blooded, straight-up murders that happens right before we get to this idyllic sequence of uh, father and daughter. Yes, we get to see uh, some of his old teammates getting uh, getting taken out. No, I, I didn't remember this at all, either. I was I was very confused when the movie first started. So Kirby leaves. Uh, he leaves behind a couple, couple guards, a couple army guys to help protect John and his daughter. Um, his daughter, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> as soon as Kirby leaves, uh, the house is in fact attacked and Matrix and Alyssa Milano are kidnapped. And that's when we find out that these uh, attackers are being led by a guy we saw supposedly die at the very beginning of the movie. But it turns out his death was just faked. And we meet Bennett, a former member of 
of the team himself, uh, who was kicked out by Matrix for enjoying the killing just a little too much. I feel like I feel like we have to pause here. I know we haven't gotten very far in our story recap, but we I feel like we kind of can't go any further until we talk about Bennett. When we first see Bennett at the beginning of the movie, he is uh, on a fishing boat, working on a fishing boat, and he's dressed like a normal person, like you would expect a dude on a fishing <laughs> boat to dress. Well, with the exception, of course, of this giant, glorious mustache he has. And then when we are properly introduced to him and it's revealed he's the one who's, you know, attacking the house with his guys and he uh, he shoots Matrix with a tranquilizer dart, we get to see him for the first time in his full and absolutely insane <laughs> bad guy regalia. He looks like Freddie Mercury on steroids. Yes, he's got the mustache. He's got the Freddie mustache. The rest of his outfit, it's... I can't do it justice in just describing it, but I'm going to try. <laughs> uh, he's wearing a dog collar. He has dog tags hanging from his neck, or, like attached to his neck by an actual dog collar, like a, ch- a choke chain dog collar. And then he has this chain mail tank top. Not mesh. Not 80s mesh, mind you, but actual metal chain mail. And it's over this... I, I thought... It was just a t-shirt, like a black, like muscle shirt. No, 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 no. <laughs> it is uh, like this weird cable knit sleeveless sweater thing. I don't even know what, what to call it. And he's got a belt over over all of it, a big belt. And the outfit is capped off by uh, a pair of leather pants. The coup de gras, leather pants. He's played by Australian actor Vernon Wells, who we saw in uh, a couple other great 80s movies. The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. He was a, you know, post-apocalyptic guy with a crazy mohawk and, and all this stuff. Um, and as a biker gang member in Weird Science, remember Lisa like summons the, the, the gang of, of crazies to crash the party? Uh, he was in that as well. Now, in this movie, he's just playing a regular man in 1985. Uh, not some post-apocalyptic psycho biker guy like but he dresses like one just uh, apparently just <laughs> just left the costuming they're like we kind of liked what you did in that film why don't you just do the same costume yeah just just go with it <laughs> no i mean this is part of like bennett's entire presence including this absurd outfit it's hilarious and i love it hilarious and i was just going to point out that this structure of sort of the ex military father who loves his daughter the daughter gets taken by an old enemy and then he now has to go out and save her sounds an awful lot like the 2009 classic thriller taken with liam neeson has a lot of the structural similarities which i love that movie too so in some ways it's almost like a like a reprise of this story so bennett brings matrix to his employer arius a former south or or central american dictator who was deposed by matrix and his old team And Arius tells Matrix that he wants him to assassinate the new president of the country he's from so that he can stage a coup and regain power. With his daughter, Alyssa Milano's life on the line, uh, he reluctantly agrees. Arius is played by Dan Hedaya, who I think is most well known for, um, he was on Cheers. He was uh, Rhea Perlman's character, um, Carla. He was Carla's uh, husband, Uh, Mr. Tertelli, Tertelli. Tortellini, whatever the, whatever the last name was. <laughs> Incredible character actor. Yes, fantastic. He's one of those guys that you just, uh, you you see and you just know you've seen him in a, in a bunch of different things. 
What about Tony Danza in this situation? How does it all Who is all the play? boss? Anyway, <laughs> around here. So the bad guys get uh, Matrix onto a plane to Valverde, a fictional country in, again, South or Central America. I, I don't know. And Matrix promptly kills the guard that was sent with him to make sure he gets off the uh, off the plane when it arrives. It's an 11-hour trip to Valverde, so he knows he has to find his daughter, find where his daughter is being held before then. And he also knows that nobody can know that he uh, is, in fact, not on the plane. Uh, he makes his way down to the bottom of the, of the plane as it's taking off, and he's hanging on the landing gear, and the plane takes off. It's up in the air, and he jumps off the plane. And can I say, that was a great, what a great sequence that was. Like, yes, it's cartoony, but like, especially during the rewatch, I was feeling so much anxiety. I'm like, he's on the plane. They're shutting the door. They actually show them lock the door, and it is so convincing. And I think even the way he kills the the bodyguard guy with him, you know, it's really well done. He kind of very cleanly smashes his face, breaks his neck, puts his head on there, and then, of course, drops one of the greatest Arnold one-liners ever about, please don't bother my friend. He's dead tired. So we need to stop. We need to talk about this. (laughs) Okay. The one-liners. Just another component of this movie that makes it so ridiculous and so fun and such a classic. Arnold movies, and let's be honest, 80s action movies in general, (laughs) are known for the the one-liners. But this movie is so above and beyond in terms of amazing, awful one-liners. And uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the first one we get. And speaking of those cheesy Arnold one-liners, yeah, as far as I can tell, he never gives an explanation in any of his movies why he has this heavy Austrian accent. And it actually is sort of becomes synonymous with Arnold himself. We just sort of expect it. But in this movie, they really did try to give it an explanation. And early on, he tells his daughter, Jenny, also known as Alyssa Milano, uh, that that he was born in East Germany. And as a boy there, he makes the quip about rock and roll being subversive. So that was kind of neat that they gave him, even though it's an apocryphal nationality, uh, it ex- explains his heavy accent. Yeah, it's kind of funny, right, that this movie, of all movies, they bother to to give an explanation for his his accent. You know, he's carrying trees... And jumping out of out of planes midair, but I guess not addressing his his obvious accent was too too out, uh, too uh, too much for him. That was going too far. So he jumps off the plane and goes after the the other guy, the other of Arius's men who dropped him off at the airport, Sully, who is played just fantastically by David Patrick Kelly, who was in Twin Peaks and The Warriors and The Crow. He's he's fantastic. He's such a great actor. Incredible character actor. My brother's absolute favorite because they watched the movie Dreamscape over oh my God, and over that was and him. over. Yes. And he was, right? Remember Snake this movie? Man. He was Snake Man. He was so creepy. He always plays this kind of slightly deranged, creepy guy. Even in Twin Peaks, you know, he plays the brother and he's crazy and nutty and they're eating the brie and butter sandwiches from Paris. He's just, he's crazy. He plays the role perfectly. So Matrix makes his way back to the airport and, uh, Finds Sully harassing uh, Cindy, an off-duty flight attendant, played by Ray Don Chong. And uh, Matrix convinces her, as Sully leaves the airport, he he hops in her car uh, and convinces her to follow him. If there's one part of the movie that does feel a little bit shoehorned in, it is the character of Cindy. In part because Ray Don Chong plays this 
really, really very nice and incredibly patient and understanding flight attendant who probably just wants to go home, you know, is stuck on this layover. And it really seems, especially in the beginning, completely unnecessary to essentially take her hostage. Matrix does it, right? I mean, it's absolutely frightening, but she is an incredibly good sport throughout. And in the end, it's kind of fun to have her along for the ride. But it is really weird at this point, especially in the rewatch. I'm like, wow, he really is crazy. He just took this random hostage for no good reason. Yeah, he totally could have just like stolen her car. Just been like, I need this and grabbed her (laughs) keys. Uh, Her car, by the way, is this gorgeous little red convertible. I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, he doesn't just take it. He rips the passenger seat out with his bare hands and just throws <laughs> it away in the parking lot. And she's like, oh, my God. And uh, he gets in the car, you know, because he's far too big for this this little car. And he kind of hunches down inside when, uh, yeah, he, he could have just taken the car. But nope, she's, she's along for the ride. By the way, it was a 1964 Sunbeam Alpine Series 4, a British car. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, Sully's car too is this is this gorgeous yellow uh, Porsche Porsche. Um, I don't know what it is a nine eleven maybe. I don't is that a, that's the only Porsche I know. That's why, that's why I said that. <laughs> so I sounded kind of like I knew what I was talking about. But it's beautiful too. This amazing yellow convertible. So they follow him to a mall uh, where a, a shootout ensues. After so Sully sees Matrix and runs to the phone booth to tell his boss. You know, he Matrix wasn't holding up his end of the deal. He he never got on the plane or he got off the plane or whatever. And to stop Sully from making that call, Matrix rips the phone booth out of the wall that Sully is in. There's a human being inside this phone booth and he rips it off the wall and holds it over his head and just body slams it. The whole thing. It's pretty spectacular to watch that scene. And it, again, because Arnold is showcased at the beginning as being this just ubermensch that you kind of just believe it. It's like, oh my gosh. And he really, he really is a very good actor, right? I mean, he really, he looks like he's straining. He's like Hercules. Yeah, no, they sell it. They sell it in this movie. You totally buy it. So, uh, Sully, the phone booth thing happens. Sully runs away and the car chase that ensues ends with Matrix dangling Sully over a, a cliff. You have to tell the story. You have to tell the story. Yeah. So apparently the director thought Arnold could actually do this. He could literally hold a, a human being by the ankle <laughs> and dangle him over a cliff safely. He was strong enough to actually pull that off. <laughs> and I guess Arnold was like, are you nuts? So then they brought in, a, they, they did it with a crane. They they hang, they hung uh, Sully from a, a crane and that's how they did it. Because not even Arnold could uh, pull that off. So Matrix finds a a hotel key, Sully's hotel key, and he heads off to intercept Cook, uh, another mercenary on this bad guy team that Sully was on his way to meet. Cook is played by Bill Duke, again, one of those actors who's just been in a ton of stuff, Uh, a great actor who who would go on to work with Arnold again a couple years later in Predator. And he played an incredible role in Predator. Uh, Remember, he he kept shaving with that, that razor. And of course, his famous quote, anytime. Yes, that's that's a great line. Not as great as the line he helps set up uh, here in this scene. When uh, in the motel where he, he fights Arnold, he uh, he tells he tells uh, Matrix, he says something like, uh, you know, this Green Beret is about to kick your big ass. And Arnold reply, <laughs> replies with, I eat Green Berets for breakfast. And right now I'm very hungry. And right now I'm feeling somewhat <laughs> peckish. 
I eat green berets for breakfast, and right now, uh, I could eat. <laughs> it's so dumb. So good. It's like it was almost a cool line, and then they tacked the last part on. Oh, man. Again, maybe the best one-liners ever in this movie. Uh, but um, So, yeah, so a big fight ensues between the two. A uh, a pretty cool, like, knockdown, drag-out fight. And that fight scene was kind of reminiscent of the the fight scene in They Live, right? Where they're battling, was that, who's that, Rowdy Roddy Piper? Yeah, Rowdy Roddy Piper and uh, <laughs> Keith David. You're right, this is, it is kind of similar and it's like, it's very visceral. And Matrix kills Cook. And in his car, they find a clue that leads them to figure out where Alyssa Milano is being held. Matrix breaks into a an army surplus store. And by like literally breaks and breaks the store, drives a like a, a forklift or a truck, some kind of construction vehicle just through the front of the store, destroying it. So he starts grabbing stuff that he'll need for his mission, starts gearing up with the kind of stuff you would expect to, to find at an at army surplus store, like um, a big survival knife and some guns and some some flippers, like some swim fins. And, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, if you wouldn't find at an army surplus store. A giant rocket launcher. <laughs> yeah. This massive, like, four-barreled rocket launcher. It was crazy. So they, they gather up all their stuff, and they steal uh, a seaplane, Arius's, like, pontoon plane that they find, and head to his, his island. When they get there, they land a little ways out, and Matrix tells Cindy to, to contact reinforcements, to call Major General franklin kirby and to talk to him specifically and of course that's my favorite line kirby code red commando coordinates which my brothers and i constantly say to each other you guys are silly <laughs> uh so they they land um and okay so matrix has all this all this gear that he brought along and instead of just suiting up on the plane like getting all of his stuff on and then hopping in the little inflatable uh, boat that they have on the plane and heading to the island so he's ready to go when he gets there. Where a normal person would do it. <laughs> yes. He doesn't know what's on this island. Like anybody would have gotten ready, then headed over there. But this this has to be an excuse to just show Arnold in all of his peak Arnold 1985 glory. He's got this. Instead, he throws everything in a bag and heads over in the boat uh, in this tiny little Speedo <laughs> showing off his just superhuman physique. When he does get to the island, we get a, we get a great montage of him gearing up suiting up with all of his stuff and at this point the movie changes instead of you know matrix fighting guys one-on-one it switches into full-on like 80s action movie guy with machine gun mows down just dozens of dudes like he uh matrix takes out like an entire army worth of guards here in increasingly um violent and graphic (laughs) fashion one part of this whole assault on the compound takes place in like a gardener's shed and here we get some gnarly deaths we get uh he throws a a saw blade like a circular saw blade at one dude and scalps him matrix gets another guy uh, right in the groin with an axe he hacks another dude's arm off with a machete and uh apparently arnold thought it would be great if matrix then grabbed the severed arm and beat the guy to death with it. But uh, I, I guess that was too much. Even for this movie, that uh, that was going a little too far. Even for a, a movie with the uh, the body count that this one has. 
And that body count was over 80 deaths, which is high even by the standards of 80s action films. But it starts out in a relatively believable manner. It's sort of closer to the way Taken portrayed it, and that one could imagine a highly trained soldier being actually capable of these feats. But then it escalates, and escalates, and escalates to a point where it seems beyond any plausibility. But it's so much fun, right? It is fun. And I think it's cool how, you know, this movie was crazy and cartoonish up until this point, and then it shifts into a new gear and... Like, all bets are off, and it's a blast. Matrix makes his way through all these guards, then kills Arius, and heads out to look for his uh, his daughter, Alyssa Milano, who actually, we find out, has escaped from the room where she's being kept, Bennett. So when uh, everybody realized it was Matrix who was attacking them, Arius told Bennett to go kill his kid, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> And Bennett arrives in the room where she's being kept and discovers that she's missing. He does eventually capture her, but decides to let her go when Matrix, in a climactic final scene in like the, the boiler room of the building, challenges him to a real fight. And this memorable villain goes out with a fittingly memorable death as Matrix, in, in a final display of crazy superhuman strength, rips a pipe off the wall and throws it at Bennett, impaling him. Impaling him through a chainmail armor shirt. Yes, literal armor that knights would wear to stop swords <laughs> and axes from penetrating their body is not enough. It's not enough to stop a, a blunt pipe thrown by John Matrix. <laughs> and after we he does this, we get the final one-liner of the whole movie. Uh, we get this, let's, to set the scene, we get this one-liner because not only has the pipe thrown by Matrix penetrated uh, a chainmail armor, an entire human torso, and the, uh, the, 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 the boiler, the water heater that Bennett is standing in front of, this pipe passes through all those things, pinning Bennett to this boiler, which causes steam to billow out of the end of the pipe. And after Bennett dies, Matrix says, Let off some steam, Bennett. And it's not even, it's not even with like a <laughs> wink and a nod it's pretty that awesome. he says it. He is like serious as a heart attack. And as 10-year-old kids, I think we cheered out loud. He emerges from the, the uh, compound with his daughter as Kirby and Cindy arrive on the scene. We get this great shot of the military helicopters flying in and then Cindy in her seaplane. She's getting her pilot license, we find out earlier, so she can conveniently fly a plane. Uh, they're all coming in to the island. And Kirby asks Matrix if he'll consider coming out of retirement. And Matrix says no. And then he and Cindy and Alyssa Milano board the seaplane and uh, fly off into the sunset. Let's talk about the music for a little bit. The score, and this is a hot take here, is one of my favorite of all 80s movies. The yeah. The composer, James Horner, he is notable in this particular score for the conspicuous use of steel drums. I don't feel like there's any other movie where I really can 
imagine steel drums being so reminiscent of the film. And he's an interesting character because he is one of the people that is often credited with what we would now call the 80s action music style, this genre of musical scores that often has a central orchestral arrangement, but also mixing with that with a lot of electronic percussion, keyboards, and lots of weird specialty instruments that some people have called jazz fusion. And it's pretty interesting because when we listen to this, I love those, you know, first of all, we love the, the steel drums. There's saxophone in this all throughout the score, which is very 80s. Um, there's these bamboo flutes and a lot of synthy parts that actually kind of reminds me a little bit of Terminator. We get some of those deep, heavy synthy tones in there. And other people have talked about this as being similar to some of the music that we've talked about before, like Brad Fidel, uh, of course, which is of Terminator fame and from and Friday Friday night. night, Harold Faltemeyer, uh, who did um, the Eddie Murphy movies, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, right? That that great that great little Axel F uh, keyboard synth, which we all learned to play on our keyboards when we were kids. Jan Hammer from Miami Vice. Uh, really neat that there's this kind of, it is kind of a genre. And the more you listen to it, the more you, you really can, can tell it's part of that genre. I love it. And I like this quote from moviemusicuk.us where they say, there are two themes prominent in the score, both of which are presented in the lengthy, quote, main title, unquote. The first is the recurring motif for Matrix himself, a 15-note steel drum cadence that repeats and folds over itself, accompanied by saxophones, bamboo flutes, Hmm. electronics, and low brasses. The second theme is the relationship theme for Matrix and his young daughter, Alyssa Milano. A bright and innocent piece for lilting strings that gently underscores the tight and genuinely heartfelt bond between the two. Matrix's unstoppable single-minded determination is paired with unstoppable single-minded music. I love that. I think it's such a great way to Hmm. kind of summarize and encapsulate this beautiful really memorable score to this day as soon as i hear that music i immediately am transported back to the movie and it kind of gets me pumped uh all the all the kind of heavy duty brassy drums going on there and then of course the final song which is again classical 80s ending it just comes out of nowhere completely unrelated to the rest of the score (laughs) we fight for love by the power station and it's kind of a rock ballad that is as inspiring as it is cheesy it really is it's like you said, it comes out of nowhere. It has nothing to do with the rest of the soundtrack that we've been listening to throughout this whole movie, but uh, but it's perfect. Should we uh, jump into a little trivia about Commando? A little bit of trivia, yes. So this was originally uh, a pretty different movie. One Draft was written with Nick Nolte in mind, and it would have been about like an older, sort of world-weary retired soldier, but then Arnold was cast and everything was just dialed up to 11. Gene Simmons from Kiss was apparently the original choice for the role. That's so funny. Which is kind of weird. Although he was in, um, he was the bad guy in that movie with Tom Selleck, uh, with the robots, the spider robots. Whoa. Uh, Runaway. <laughs> Runaway with all the spider robots and Tom Selleck. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> Am I making that movie up? I swear it was a thing. That one that almost sounds like a misremembered dream. I'm not sure I recall that one, but maybe. Val Verde, the, uh, the country that the bad guy is from is a fictional country. Uh, used by Stephen D'Souza, writer of Commando, when he when his stories require a South or Central American locale that won't cause any legal or di- diplomatic problems. This is the first time 
He uses it in Commando. We also saw it. Uh, it's also where the bad guy from Die Hard 2 was from, the dictator in that movie. Those Valverdians, they're always up to no good. A couple of locations in this movie were, were famous from other 80s movies. The mansion used in the final shootout between Matrix and Arius is the the former Harold Lloyd estate in Beverly Hills, and it's the same mansion in the final shootout, shootout between Axel Foley and Victor Maitland in Beverly Hills Cop in 1984. The mall, during the big mall shootout, crazy phone booth scene, uh, it's the same one that was used in Terminator 2, T2, Judgment Day, in 91, of course, also starring Arnold. As we mentioned earlier in the show, there was a toy line associated with this movie from Diamond Toy Makers. They released a, a line of action figures in 86, and they were small, like four-inch G.I. Joe-sized guys with the same kind of articulation. And the story goes, Matrix now leads a, a new unit of colorful, cartoonish characters with uh, code names like Specs and Blaster, Chopper, um, and the bad guy is Psycho, who, you know, is, is supposed to be Bennett. But um, in our defense, we never played with these toys or knew about them. Yeah, we, we certainly we certainly didn't uh, didn't play with these. We've talked a lot about some of the great one liners in this movie that Arnold delivers. And uh, a couple of the characters get some good ones in Radon Chong as uh, as Cindy in the hotel fight with Matrix and Cook. They're throwing each other around again. It's a big, crazy, visceral fight. Um, and her reactions to the motel fight were apparently filmed totally separately and were completely ad-libbed. So we get great one-liners from Radon Chong, like, I can't believe this macho bullshit. And <laughs> these guys eat too much red meat. It's so good. It's no, uh, let off some steam, but they're pretty good lines. I want to close out the show here, our discussion of Commando, by... Showing some appreciation for my favorite, I think, line in the movie, which is delivered not by Matrix, but by Bennett. So in order to to do this line justice and really give it the proper context and gravitas it deserves, <laughs> we need to talk more about the, the final climactic battle between Matrix and Bennett, which, as we said, takes place uh, in this boiler room basement, steamy basement. Bennett and Matrix meet, and Bennett has John's daughter. And Matrix says, hey, you don't need her. Let's do this man-to-man. Come on. You want to take your knife? You want to take your big knife and stick it in me? Good. That's what you want. That's paraphrased, by the way. And then we see uh, Bennett, you know, who's been clearly crazy, but pretty pretty uh, calm and together. Throughout the movie at this up until this point, but he starts to lose it. He really starts to become unraveled. And he's like, I don't need the girl. Oh, I don't need the girl. Oh, I know. I don't need the girl. <laughs> this is really spot on Australian accent. Uncanny. I know. It's like Australian actor Vernon Wells is here with us in studio right now. Um, <laughs> hey, fun fact. Speaking of Australia, when we were um, little kids, we were convinced that everyone in Australia was named Mike. Because a friend of ours, a kid at school, uh, shared a, this fact with us one day, and we were like, what are you talking about? And he had just seen, I, I think it was Crocodile Dundee, and he was like, yeah, everyone says, good day, Mike. Good day, Mike. Thought they were, he thought they were saying Mike. And, um, 
We didn't realize he was saying mate because no, you know, nobody says mate here. So clearly it must be Mike. Um, we were like, holy shit, this guy's right. Everyone is Mike. <laughs> we were uh, we were bright boys. So anyway, Matrix uh, Matrix goads Bennett into letting Alyssa Milano go and uh, taking him on in a, in a fight, a knife fight with these giant scary knives they both have. And I got to tell you, this scene, watching it now for the first time in many years, I feel like there's a lot of subtext here that we may not have caught uh, as 10-year-olds. This scene, it's um, it's it's charged. There's an energy to it. Look, <laughs> do your own research. Watch the scene yourself. Uh, come to your own conclusion. But um, it uh, it ends with um, with Matrix getting the upper hand, and then Bennett pulls out a gun, and I'm going to do my best Vernon Wells Australian accent. He but right immediately before being impaled by Matrix Matrix's pipe, his giant pipe that he throws. Bennett says, <clears throat> John, I'm not going to shoot you between the eyes. I'm going to shoot you between the bows. <laughs> and that's how they say balls in Australia. <laughs> We're going to put uh, this scene, video of this scene, and some other cool bonus material on this episode's page on our website. Go to McQuaidArcade.com, click on episodes, find this one's page, check it out. Or you can just click the uh, handy link in the podcast description. Commando remains the ultimate 80s Schwarzenegger movie, replete with a threadbare plot, outsized action, and endless one-liners. It stands to this day as a monument to this forgotten genre. At the beginning of the movie, we were introduced to Matrix as he comes out of the forest with a close-up on his boots, chest, biceps, a scene apparently shot and edited in a similar fashion to Nazi propaganda movies with the express intent to represent the notion of an invincible man emerging from the forest. And indeed, we believed that he was invincible. He was unstoppable. And for at least those 92 blissful minutes, his righteous and fully apolitical mission to rescue Alyssa Milano was clearly justified. Nay, a moral imperative in our 10-year-old minds. As DJR Bruckner of the New York Times wrote, quote, two-thirds of this 90-minute film is mayhem, unrelieved by humor, and untouched by humanity, unquote. We couldn't agree more. And on that note, stay limber. <laughs>